a five-week sermon series that we're kicking off kind of the ministry year with, where we're looking at the nature and the activities of the local church. If you didn't catch last week, if you weren't here last week, or if you maybe zoned out for about 30 minutes in the end of the service, you can go back and listen on our website or through our podcast to the sermon that John preached last week. I would encourage you to do that if you can, because what John laid out there when he talked about the nature of a church, what is a church, is foundational for everything else that's going to kind of flow in this sermon series. So we're looking at the nature and the activities of a local church. Last week, John pointed out the difference between the church universal that's made up of all believers from all times in every place and the church local. That is a specific group of believers that meet under specific leaders and at a specific time and place. These local churches, like this local church and other local churches that meet in this building and in this city, they're manifestations, they're pictures of the universal church. Each one of them is not the universal church, but they are pictures of it. Our statement of faith puts it like this. We believe that the church is the bride of Christ and is comprised of all true believers from every tribe, language, people, and nation throughout all ages. That's, that's church universal. It is made manifest in local churches, which are marked by the right preaching of God's word and the right administration of the ordinances. So each local church is a picture, a display, a representation of the universal church. All that was last week. This week, we're going to be looking at a specific activity of the local church, the gathering of the local church. There's not too many sermons that are more awkward to preach the next day than the first day, but it's easy to talk about the gathering in this setting because we've all gathered. Tomorrow, I get to do this on Zoom and talk to people who aren't gathered and talk about the gathering of the church. But that's what we're spending our time on today. The main thing that we hope to see is that the Bible calls for churches to gather. It sets out activities that we're supposed to do in our gathering, and it's for our good. So the Bible calls for churches to gather, sets out activities for the gathering, and it's for our good. To try to answer that question of why do we gather, why should we do this, we're looking at three questions. So first, what is the church's gathering? Second, what does the church do in its gathering? And third, why does the church's gathering matter? What is the gathering of the church? What does the church do when it gathers? And why does that matter? We're going to answer those questions with many subpoints today. So I have my clicker. So first, what is the church's gathering? The word for church that shows up in the New Testament, do any of you know it? The, the word for church is the word ecclesia. Ecclesia, it's the study of church, the theology of church is ecclesiology. Ecclesia literally means an assembly. So when the Bible uses, in the New Testament, it uses the word for church, it talks about the assembly, the gathered ones. 
the church, the, the new covenant people of God, is called to assemble. It's called an assembly. It's called the set-apart ones. But the church isn't the only people that assemble in the Bible. This is a word that could be used from multiple different assemblies. So, for example, when the people of God in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, come together to receive the law from Moses, the Greek translation of the Hebrew calls what they're doing an assembly. So they assemble together, they ecclesia together. The, the pagan Ephesians in Acts 19 When they hear the preaching of the gospel, they recognize that, wait, this is going to affect our income. We we make money off of selling statues of the goddess Artemis. They create a riot. That riot is called an ecclesia, an assembly. So the word for church can be used to simply say a gathering, a meeting, an assembly. But in the New Testament, it is predominantly used to describe the new covenant people of God. And the fact that the local manifestations, the local pictures of the new covenant people of God are called gatherings or churches should show us something about the nature of the local church. To be a church is to gather. So, To be a church is to gather. Individuals don't assemble. I don't wake up in the morning and I'm like, Luke, assemble yourself. No, individuals can't do it. You need other people. And lists of people that simply exist in lists, like a Facebook group, right? Or simply a roster of people by itself that never meets, that's not an assembly either. To assemble, you need to find other people and get together and gather together, and meet together. The idea of belonging to a church that never assembles is a contradiction. That's like being part of a band that never meets together to play music, or part of a football team that never meets together to play football. A band that never does that is not a band. A football team that never meets to play football team is not a football team. And a church that doesn't assemble ever is not a church. To be a church is to gather. To be an assembly is to assemble. Now, what I'm not saying is that local churches don't exist outside of the gathering. Like, the only time that our assembly means anything is when we come together like this. Like, every week, we're a new church, week in and week out. No, we have an identity as Redeemer Online outside of our assembly. This is what theologians have called the church scattered. Church gathered, church scattered. We have things in common that still define us. For example, we have a membership covenant that we make to one another, that we say, I commit to these people. One of the commitments that we make is to meet with people. I commit to these people. We have this membership covenant. We have leaders that we are joined together under. We have ministries that we participate in together. All of these play a part of our identity outside of the gathering. All of these play a part of our identity during the 167 hours that we aren't in this room together. But the gathering is an essential part of the church. You take out the gathering, 
and you have all those other things, and you don't actually have a church. Since the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, local churches have met together week in and week out to gather. They've met at different regularities. So in the book of Acts, when the church was beginning, we see that the church was actually meeting daily. So daily they were going to the temple together and breaking breads in their home. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. So day in and day out, the church would come together to be able to receive the teaching of the word and to meet in each other's homes. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, we see them meeting on a weekly basis, usually on the first day of the week, on Sunday, which was called the Lord's Day. We see that in Acts 20 and 1 Corinthians 16. But the main thing that the New Testament teaches is that the church met. The church met consistently. The church met regularly. It was a part of their life together. In this way, church was more like family dinner than a family reunion. Do you guys know, I don't know if this may be a very American thing, but do you guys know what a family reunion is? So a family reunion is kind of the once a year, maybe, once every couple years, get together that extended family has. So you get your cousins, your second cousins, your great aunts and great uncles and great grandparents and whatnot. We all get together and growing up, Almost every summer on my dad's side, we would have a family reunion, and it was a fantastic time. We'd drive the next state over, family would fly in from all over the country, and we would have a meeting for three days. We'd rent this little space, and we'd hang out together. We'd play golf, we'd swim, we'd eat lots of food. It was fantastic. But the first part of that family reunion was always catching up with one another, because a year had taken place, sometimes multiple years, since we last saw each other. So there were kids who were born since the last family reunion. There were boyfriends who become fiancés, who became husbands since the last family reunion. And so while we had a great time, we always had to spend the first part of it just catching up because it had been so long. It was sweet, but it was rare. Family meals, family dinners, when I was growing up, were not rare. They happened regularly. And they weren't highlights of the week, usually. Right? Sometimes they were awkward. Sometimes they were boring. My mom's a good cook. Sometimes the food wasn't all that tasty, though. Right? You would have good meals. You would have bad meals. They came. They went. Often, the memorable family dinners that I have so I can remember lots of family reunions. The memorable family dinners that I have are because they were awkward or something happened or there was tension. But if you asked me, would you take a yearly family reunion or a regular throughout the week family meal, which one would you choose? I would take the family meal every time. At those meals... I became who I was. At those meals, I learned what it looked like to follow Christ. I learned what it looked like to be corrected and to be encouraged and to be challenged. I was shaped. I was formed. I was kept accountable. I was encouraged. It wasn't always the highlight of the week, but as I look back, 
18 years of those, it was certainly the highlight of those 18 years. The weekly gathering of the church is like a family meal. A conference may be like a family reunion. A big get-together within the city might be like a family reunion. They can be sweet and they can be high times. But the family meal is what shapes us. It's what encourages us. There's good services. There's not so good services. There's great sermons. There's not so great sermons. There's good singing. There's not so good singing. Sometimes there's tension. Sometimes there's sin. But because of the work of Christ Jesus creating a new people, we are committed to one another, reconciling, and we know we belong at the table together. We belong together. The local church is a household of God, and the gathering is like our family dinner. And just like family dinner, the church gathers collectively and consistently to build one another up and to worship God. So that's the first What is the church's gathering? It's the regular family dinner. It's the collective get-together where we know one another and are known by one another. But what do we do in the gathering? What happens when the church gathers? I have eight actions that the church does, and I could have more. But this is not an exhaustive list, but it is representative of what the Bible describes churches as doing and calls for churches to do. Now, not every single one of these, one of the challenges when you, when you talk about the church's gathering, reading through the Bible, is that the, the, the New Testament doesn't say, this is your order for service. Song, prayer, song, sermon, song, exit. It doesn't lay it out like that. What it does is it has commands. It has pictures. It has descriptions. And then we use wisdom to say, how do we do that together? So not every one of these necessarily needs to be present in a single gathering, but they do need to be present when the church gathers regularly and consistently. So, okay, eight actions that the church does in its gathering. The first, meet. Meet. In 2021, I feel like I need to lead with this. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Human language is always adapting. Human language is always adapting. When I was a university student, we talked about prescriptivist and descriptivist approach to, un- to language. Language is always changing. In 2021, a video call can be called a meeting. But I always start this way on our Zoom online service that we do on Fridays, and I say, welcome to this Zoom thing that we do, or this thingy that we have, because it's not really a meeting. It's not really a gathering. I may send out a meeting link, but that word does not contain the concept that the New Testament calls us to with meetings. Meetings are intimate. Meetings are face-to-face. Meetings are side-by-side, greeting one another with holy kisses, right? So that's, that's the picture of the New Testament life together is intimate, close. That's what a meeting is. And I'm thankful for Zoom. I'm blessed for Zoom. Our church would not be where we are this year apart from Zoom. But Zoom is not a meeting. Zoom is a thing. 
It's not what the Bible calls us to do. And so for Redeemer Online, while we are thankful for Zoom, Zoom is not a long-term strategy for us. It is a temporary concession (laughs) in the midst of a pandemic. And as soon as we can meet together, encourage one another face-to-face, collectively, consistently, then we will do it. Churches are called to meet. Second, churches are called to sing. They're called to sing. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Churches are called to sing. And notice, who do we sing to? We sing to each other. We address one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Not to harp on Zoom too much, but this is another reason why a Zoom service isn't really a service, isn't really a gathering the way the church describes it. Because in a Zoom service, your mic's muted, no one else can hear you, at best your family can hear you. And yes, it it can be worshiping God, but you're not addressing your brothers and sisters with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. When we come together, we should be encouraged by each other's voices. Our singing is not simply a vertical experience, praising God. It is that, but it's also a horizontal experience. And I can tell you, when our church hadn't met for three or four months, and we stood in this room without chairs, awkwardly spaced apart, that was worth it. Because you can get teaching online that feels kind of one-to-one, but singing There's nothing like singing with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Church is called to address one another and God. Third, pray. Pray. When Paul's writing to Timothy in the church of Ephesus, he talks about the way that they should pray. And the context of this passage shows that he's talking about the gathering. And he says this, I urge that supplications, intercessions, prayers, and thanksgivings be made for all people for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. The prayer should be a part of the church's life together. Now, this this can be collective prayers. This can be a person representing the church, like Pastor John was just doing, praying on behalf of the church. But we should pray. We should be a praying people when we gather. And we should pray for all peoples. Pastor John prayed for governing leaders because of this text. Prayed for the nation of Thailand because of this text. Prayed for members of this church because of this text. For other churches in our city and in our country because of this text. We are called to pray when we gather together. Fourth, read. Read. Until I come... Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. The church is called to hear from the very words of God. Some of you guys have not known our church outside of this setting. For those who can remember the convention center days, when we had a little bit more time, we would have either an Old Testament or a New Testament reading. And we would read the text, sometimes paragraphs of it, without explanation before we prayed. We want to hear from God. Teaching is important. We're going to go there in a second. But we want to hear the very words of God and sit under the Bible. If we, if we believe that God speaks through this word, 
then we should give ourselves to hearing from it. Fifth, preach. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Timothy is the pastor of the church in Ephesus when Paul's writing to him. And his ministry is called to be one of proclamation. He's called to take the text of Scripture, the Word, and to unfold it, to give the sense, to preach it and proclaim it, to build faith in those who hear. Now, we don't know exactly what that looked like week in and week out. The Bible doesn't say preach for 35 minutes preach for 45 minutes. The Bible doesn't say preach three-point sermons. It doesn't tell you how many points to have. Probably less than this sermon has. But we are called to preach the word. And again, if we believe that God speaks through this book, then we should even give priority to hearing from the word. Because when this word is properly unfolded, we hear from God himself. Preach the word. Six, partake partake. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. And the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup and after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When the church gathers, the church should regularly partake of the Lord's Supper. Through our taking of the Lord's Supper, we are enjoying the covenant meal that Jesus left us. We are proclaiming his death and resurrection until he comes again. And over this last year, one of the more challenging things for the elders, as our members have known, most of our members have known, is how do we take the Lord's Supper in a pandemic? We are not legally allowed to take the Lord's Supper in this setting. Our church, we probably wouldn't do it, even if we were legally, because this is not a collective representation of our church. We have people who cannot come because of spatial restraints. And when Paul writes this, the very thing that he goes after is that some people were eating and getting drunk off of the wine from the Lord's Supper so that others weren't able to partake of it. So we want to take the Lord's Supper together. But the challenge of this pandemic has been, how do we do this? Our our in-person service excludes people, and our online service is not a gathering. So the elders have been wrestling with how to obey this command. And, and this is for members to hear right now, those who have covenanted together with us. We think, as elders, we have a way to do this. So stay tuned. We believe that in October we will be able to take the Lord's Supper. So you can pray for us that we can do that and check your WhatsApps and check your emails. The church is called to do this collectively to do this together, to display our unity in Christ as we gather. And we do it as a means of grace and as a way of proclaiming Christ's death until he comes again. Seven, 
discipline. The church is called to discipline. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, Paul says, and my spirit is present with you, the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. One thing that the church does when it gathers is church discipline. We'll spend an entire sermon on discipline, so I don't need to unfold this completely now. But the most famous gathering text, the staff looked at this this last week, the most famous gathering text in the New Testament, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst, that's actually talking about church discipline. Where two or three are gathered together, Matthew 18, for the sake of church discipline. Jesus is there. He's in the midst. The church comes together for the sake of discipline. There's two types of discipline. There's corrective discipline, which is what Paul's talking about here. That's like the removing something that's going to make your church impure. And then there's formative discipline. That's through the regular ministry of the word that's teaching and strengthening and building. That's more like weightlifting. Collecting dis- corrective disciplines like cutting calories. Formative disciplines like weightlifting. At Redeemer Online, we do church discipline as a church. We do it when the church gathers together. John and I don't have the power to be able to discipline people. The church has been given that authority, and we gather to do it, usually at a separate members' meeting. I was torn of whether or not to include this in here, but one of the reasons why I think discipline is significant is because of the next task that the church does. In discipline, what we are doing is we are saying Christians are called to live in a certain way. I don't know everyone in this room. Some of you may not be believers. One of the things that can drive people outside the church crazy, drive people inside the church crazy too, but outside the church crazy, is when they look at the church and they say, look, you say this, but you live in a way that's completely different than what you profess to believe. How does that make sense? And that's true. Christians are sinners. We are regularly hypocritical. But through church discipline, what we try to do is we try to say, those people who are unrepentantly hypocritical, those people whose lives really don't reflect the truth of the gospel, we want to say, they're, they're not actually part of the church. They're, they're not actually belonging to Christ. We come together to protect the purity of the church. And in doing so, our final action, we witness. We witness. The gathering of the church is primarily for believers. So the church comes together as a family primarily for believers. But throughout the New Testament, we always assume that there are non-believers present. Pastor John mentioned this, I believe, last week with 1 Corinthians 14. In 1 Corinthians 14, you have a situation where Paul is talking about spiritual gifts. It's complicated. It's hard to understand. But he emphasizes the priority of prophecy over tongues for the corporate gathering because outsiders can understand prophecy. It's intelligible. When the church comes together, our gathering should witness to the truth of Jesus, to those who aren't believers. We sing songs that communicate the gospel. We try to be clear with what we believe. Our prayers have the shape of the gospel. Our sermons hopefully contain the gospel. We do this because we assume that there are unbelievers among us. And in our preaching, we try not to assume the gospel. 
Okay. So third point here. Why does the church gathering matter? We've seen what the church does in its gathering. We meet together. We sing together. We pray for all people. We read the text of Scripture. We sit under the preaching of the Word. We partake of the Lord's Supper. We protect the purity of the church through discipline. And we witness the truth of the gospel through the watching world. Why does the gathering matter, though? There's a lot of ways that I could answer this. In 2021, I'm trying to approach it from a particular angle and a particular set of challenges. And so there are unique temptations that this year has brought. So I'm going to mention two particular reasons why the gathering matters that I hope are relevant for us this year. The first is the gathering matters because physical togetherness matters. Physical togetherness matters. One of the earliest heresies in the church was Gnosticism. Have you guys heard of Gnosticism? Gnosticism was a teaching that said physical equals bad. The body is bad. The spirit is good. We want to put off the physical so that we can be pure spirit forever and achieve this higher knowledge, the gnosis. That's where it comes from, this higher knowledge. And the early church combated this teaching by saying, we serve an embodied Savior. We have a Christ who became flesh, who physically rose from the dead. It wasn't a spiritual resurrection. He physically rose from the dead, and he created a body of Christ, the church. The Bible is not at all ashamed of the physical one of my favorite quotes on this is from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says, God's not embarrassed about matter, about physical stuff. It's his idea. God didn't create a mere spiritual world. He created a world physically, and throughout all eternity, it will be physical, glorified, but physical. In fact, the Bible literally glories in the physical. So John 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus didn't just drift among us as a spirit. He became flesh. He dwelt among us. When he was resurrected, he, he, could, he could point to holes in his hand and in his side. You could touch him. You'd walk alongside him. You'd be with him. As human beings, we are embodied souls. And physical realities affect us. And one implication of this from 2021 is that we shouldn't too quickly separate the physical togetherness from corporate worship, nor should we minimize the benefits that simply come from being physically together. Hearing a room, I mentioned this earlier, he hearing a room full of voices singing songs is an incredible encouragement. It is. This is not manipulative. So sometimes churches that love theology and love doctrine can say, ah, we care about the lyrics. You should care about the lyrics. Don't try and create an emotional atmosphere or anything like that. We don't want to manipulate. We don't want to create an emotional atmosphere for its sake of itself. But I can tell you what, you can read lyrics to a song or you can listen to lyrics in a song and it's different 
when you're standing side by side with people singing it. It does something to our hearts. Hearing others around us as the music is going forward, as the song lyrics are being sung and proclaimed together, as the voices are layering upon each other, sometimes out of tune, but it does something to our hearts, and it should, because we are physically together. That's not to criticize recorded music. Recorded music is a huge gift, but the context matters. Take preaching. There's been a number of experiences that I've had in my adult life where I've been sitting in the room with other people, hearing a sermon preached, and everyone is in sync with what's being said. The Holy Spirit is moving through the room, and it's tangible and palpable. I could go back, and I could re-listen to those sermons, and I guarantee it would not be the same experience. Why? Because it mattered who I was with the people that I was sitting with. Hearing is not an individualistic thing. We hear together. Being embodied souls means that we should not overlook the spiritual benefits that come from being physically together. Physical togetherness matters. Second reason why being together matters is that we don't know what our souls need. We don't know what our souls need. Technology has opened up amazing opportunities. We can listen to Bible preachers far better than me, far better than John. The best Bible preachers alive, we can listen to them. We we, we can have Bibles on our phones that read to us. It's amazing. There's books that are published every month that no one on earth has time to read. Good books. Technology is a huge, huge grace. Yet, we approach all of those resources as consumers. It's it's part of the nature of it. And it's not wrong to approach those resources as consumers. We are the ones that choose which books to listen to. We are the ones that choose which playlist we're going to listen to. We're the ones that listen to what sermons are we going to listen to. And this is where the problem lies As human beings, we don't actually know what our souls need. The Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And this is one reason why we need other people. We cannot assess our own needs, our own state of our heart, effectively by ourselves. We need brothers and sisters to be able to walk alongside us, to be able to keep us accountable, to be able to speak into our lives when they see things. We can't trust that we are actually aware of what we need to listen to, what we need to sing, what we need to read. And when we come to corporate worship, what we do is we give up the seat of control in our own lives. How many of us, how many of us have fallen in love with songs that we would never have chosen to listen to because we sing them in church? How many of us have been just lockstep with somebody's prayer, hearing someone confess something or hearing someone lament or hearing someone ask something from God and thinking, I didn't know that I needed that until he said that? How many of us have fallen in love with sermons 
or passages of Scripture that we wouldn't have, apart from sermons that we wouldn't have listened to on our own. If we only ever read or listen to what we think we need, then we are limited by our own insight. But we are stronger together as a body. Corporate worship helps us to be filled out and rounded out in a way that reflects the scope and the shape of the Christian life. It matters. Because our brothers and sisters know what we need. To be a church is to gather. For centuries, churches have gathered week in and week out to do the sort of things that Redeemer Online does. The format may look different, the style may be different, but the principles and the actions have been consistent since Christ's ascension. And through these ordinary gatherings, God has used his word to build his church. God has used his people to encourage one another and spur one another on to love and good deeds. We are here right now in this room because churches continued to gather, sometimes when it was very dangerous, sometimes it was very difficult. And we have the promise of Jesus that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it.